Did you have fun on Tuesday? Sorry. Again, I told a couple who were early. I did know about this. I've known about it for about a month now. Uh, but I was told I can't, can't warn you because if I tell you I'm not going to be there and there's going to be a college survey, I'll get one or two people show up. So I had to not tell you, but I did make sure if you, I think it looks like everybody signed in. Make sure if you were here Tuesday, you signed in, so I'll give you credit for it. Yes? You said that you weren't allowed to tell us because we wouldn't show up. But didn't you say we were allowed to leave at any time? Didn't what? Well, yeah, you're not required to do it, but if I told, how many people would have even come if I had said, I'm not going to be here and there's going to be someone coming to give you a survey that's going to take an hour? You wouldn't have shown up, right? I probably wouldn't have shown up in your place either. So, so that, that, that is why I didn't, that's why I didn't tell you. So, but worked out wonderful for me. I got to spend the day driving across the state there and back. So about the time you, would, you were taking the thing, I had gotten all the way to the western edge of Pennsylvania and then turned around and came back. So it was great, great, fun, great fun to do. So I didn't have really fun even though I didn't have, the, have class that day. Why did you do that? Why did I do that? Uh, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter's confirmation was this weekend and my in-laws were in visiting. They're relatively old. They do not drive a four and a half hour drive. So I took them back. I went and got them that weekend and I took them back and came back. So, so I, spent the, I spent about nine hours driving that day. Yeah. Well. So coming up, we do have quiz five available through today. It was originally supposed to be available through Monday and I've since thought about that and it's really, I've tried to fix this with the next quiz which is going to be available not starting on a Monday, it's actually going to be available starting on April 3rd, next week, Tuesday. And it will be available through Tuesday for a week, so that way you'll get that last minute reminder so that people have, oh, I need to take that quiz by today because I know how many wait till the last minute. So you have this one, you can get into quiz five right now, you can finish that anytime through the end of the day today. And quiz six, which will go up, it won't be available early next week, it'll be available on Tuesday and it'll be available through the following Tuesday. If you were here Tuesday, make sure you sign both. And it'll be available through the following Tuesday. That way you'll get that last minute reminder on Tuesday saying, I've got to take that quiz. So if you forget about it, you still have a chance to get in and do it. And then we have homework six, which is due uh, April 10th. I put it due a little bit later between the fact that we missed class on Tuesday and that we have a day off the following next Thursday. So I've gotten you through the next, instead of making it due Thursday when we're not here and having everybody try to email it <laughs> to me that, that week, it actually will be due by class the next, the next week. So you'll have that. And then I still have exam three scheduled as we discussed last time for today, but not in class today, but I'm going to give it to you to take. So there you go. So I'll give it to you to take home. There is a copy of it already up on D2L. So I already have it up there if you want to take a look at it. You can't take it online, it's just a file on there. But you can actually access it, but I'll give you a paper copy. And that will be due on Tuesday. And that's the material through we'll cover today. We should get through, hope we get through everything today for it, since I already have it made up and printed. But that's what's coming up. So I will give you that, I'll give you that at the end of the class so you're not distracted by it right now. But. I know the homework won't distract you too much, but the quiz, the, the exam might. So, but I do have that. I'll hand that out. I'll okay, save the last couple minutes and hand that out. So, any questions on what's coming up? No, no. Oh, solar observations due too this week. So, if you've gotten any made this month, it's the last chance for me to look at them in advance and sort of see what you're getting. 
and how they're coming and what if there's any if there's any issues with them, I'll be happy to look at them for you. So yes, sir. For to, uh, to for the observations, to measure, uh, the, the object should be something that's square, a box type object would be good, and then any kind of regular ruler to measure the length of your shadow. But any any kind of boxy objects works real well. Pointed things don't work well. Anything that's a really odd shape to it doesn't work very well. Anything that's right, nice and smooth, a box, a cereal box, you know, a macaroni and cheese box, something smaller, a soup, even a soup can will work. It's rounded will work. It's just when you start tapering the points, it becomes to a problem. Yes, sir. Well, you measure, measure, you also use tape measures too. You can use a tape measure; it would work just fine. Yeah. Yep. Any kind of ruler, tape measure, some way to do it. I mean, I've had people who've done it, you know, to take a put the object on a piece of paper and you know, set it on the same paper and just mark it there and then go measure it afterwards. You know, as long as you mark the length of the shadow, you don't need to measure it that. You don't need to take a ruler and try to measure it on the ground. You could do it on a piece of paper. On, I mean, I've had people who've gone through all sorts of fancy things, built this little apparatus to do the measurements. You don't have to do all that. That's why I'm trying to make it very simple. All I got to do is take a box, measure the length of the shadow. But I will be happy to look at those. Now, I gave extra credit for those who turned in the Febu January and February ones. There is five points extra credit. So if you turn in at least an observation so I can look at it for you, you'll get at least five points extra credit for that one, too. But that's the last one I'm collecting. The assignment will be due the end of April, so I'm not going to collect them again in in at the end of April. It would be a little, a little silly to do. Other questions? Yes? I have a question about the extra credit assignment. Mm-hmm. Okay. To do a painting. So okay. Like, if you do something like that, does it have to? Do I have to have like information with it, or if I wanted to draw or paint like a nebula, would that be okay? I think that I think that would probably be good. Okay. If you're doing if you're doing a regular, I mean, a full painting. If you're not just doing like a little sketch or something. If you're yeah. doing a full painting, I would think that that would be. I've had people do that, and that's sufficient. Okay. You don't need anything else with, with that. Okay. Anything else? Okay, picture of the day for today then. Rocket trails through the Milky Way galaxy. So, not traveling through the Milky Way galaxy, but our Milky Way is stretching across the frame from the upper left here down towards the lower right. That's our galaxy. And the center of our galaxy is located, oh, right about over here someplace. Um, don't really see anything nice and fancy there, even though it's the center of our galaxy and there's you know, many millions upon millions upon millions of stars there. But we also have all the dust, all this dust in our galaxy, something we'll talk about over the, we talked a little bit about when we talked about the interstellar medium the last time, and we'll talk about it more when we actually talk about galaxies. But what the picture is showing here is actually these trails that have been left by our rockets that were shown up, set up. And it was a set of five rockets that were sent up actually two days ago. It was on the 27th, if I recall. And they were launched from Virginia, and they were sent up to the very upper reaches of the atmosphere, and then they released a trail. They released material there, and what they're doing is trying to follow the, what the winds are doing, not just in the atmosphere that we're used to, you know, where we're, where we're used to observing, where we're used to living, but what is going on 50 and 60 miles up in the atmosphere. So they're trying to trace what are the winds doing that far up in the atmosphere so that we can get a better understanding, perhaps, of what's going on in that, what they call the upper jet stream, not the regular. You know, the jet stream, you hear about the jet stream all the time. That's usually a few miles above the Earth. Here you're talking 50 or 60 miles. There's actually an upper jet stream that is much higher above. And that's what they were trying to study here. And then someone took a picture of it, just sort of the, those 
trail silhouetted against the, against the Milky Way background there. And our center of our galaxy is right about here. These are the constellations of Sagittarius is right here. This part of Sagittarius actually is called the teapot. You can see a little teapot there as the handle and a lid and a spout. So looks more like a teapot than an archer, right? You know where the archer is, but and then Scorpius, and, and that's where our center of our galaxy is just off the edge of the teapot there. And then Scorpius is over here, and you can see the little hooked tail, perhaps, of the scorpion. Now, if you can see it sort of goes up here, goes up towards this direction, and then down in a long little hooked tail, a little hooked tail in there, so. That's just a couple of the little constellations that you see in that as well. All right, questions? I, they, they've just done it. So what they're concluded, I don't know yet. This was just this. Well, these were launched on the 27th of March. So right now, all we're learning is you know we're seeing the picture that someone took. We haven't got. They haven't given me any. It's given any analysis of what the data, what they found out about studying these. I'm sure they're still going to be an analyzing the data for many months to come. You know, to find out what they learned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was designed that way on purpose. <laughs> but yeah, there were five rockets launched, and you can see the one. This was one later, and that was probably the first one. This time it had more. They were spread about a minute and a half apart. So they'd launch one rocket up there, release it, and then a minute so that they could follow it over, over a good amount of time. But interesting. Okay, questions? Yes, sir. I'll get you in a second. I don't think they gave any numbers. I wouldn't think it would take all that. I mean, I think it would be relatively quickly. I mean, the order of the, within hours to a day. I mean, it's not going to be there for years or years, but I don't think it would dissipate just in minutes. But I don't have a number, specific number on it for you. Give me one second. I know Jake had a question. Uh, what, what did they release? Yeah, that was my next let me see if they, if they said, I, I didn't look up that carefully to see what they actually released up there. I don't know if it tells me in here or if I'd have to research. Oh, high altitude jet stream. Releasing a chemical tracer. They don't say what chemical. <laughs> so at least on here it doesn't tell me what chemical. Yes, Chris. They were launched from Virginia. Because the launch was actually would have been, they, they would have been visible from here. Is what I was told, at least. Relatively small rockets. They're not like the big, you know, not the shuttle-sized giant rockets. These are much smaller little rockets. But apparently, they launched them. I don't know if they said exactly where here. 4:58 in the morning. Wallops flight, the flight, flight facility, flight facility in Virginia, and I'm not sure if it says. I'm curious where it is. Getting to Wallops. Well, it's 170 miles from Philadelphia, so 125 from Annapolis. So down a ways into Virginia, but I'm going to go back. So anything else? All right, let's go on to, on to the stars. So we were looking here last time, about a week ago. We were talking about the evolution of a star like the sun. 
And we've gotten a good chunk, we've got a chunk of the way through it. We're going to finish it up today and go on and look at some more massive stars. But what we talked about last time, we'd ended up, we'd, we'd used up all the hydrogen in the core, so we were building up helium. You know, burn the hydrogen, you leave helium in there. So the core is, is contracting. There's no energy source, it continues to contract. It gets denser and denser and denser, you know, more dense than anything we can imagine on Earth. And the temperature continues to rise. When you get the temperature high enough, you know, took a high temperature, took 10 million degrees to smash two protons, each with a single positive charge together and get them to stick. Now, you're try now you've got the whole thing is full of helium, two, two protons in each. And you're trying to smash those together, it takes even more energy, takes even more higher temperature. And it takes about 100 million degrees. Once you get to 100 million degrees, then you have another source of energy. You have helium nuclei that will start smashing together and sticking. And in fact, what you end up getting is what's called, it's called the triple alpha process. You get three, and I don't have three hands, so I can't quite do three heliums. <laughs> you have three helium atoms smashing together together at the same time and forming a carbon atom. So you get helium, 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 three of them together forming carbon and releasing energy. When it starts, it starts extremely quickly and it's what we call the helium flash. So it burns not slowly like the hydrogen did, it burns very, very quickly when it starts. So it's an extremely rapid process as this fusion starts. It's sort of a run, almost a runaway explosion in the core. It just takes, it doesn't really blow up anything, but it goes rapidly throughout the entire core of the star. You're, all of a sudden you're creating helium into, car, into carbon and you're slowly, over a couple hours, expanding that core. That core has compacted and gotten so dense that it's not, it doesn't really want to expand anymore. So it requires a lot of energy just to push that core back out to where it was. So over hours you're, you're eventually getting the, you're expanding the core, making, reaching stability again, reaching some kind of equilibrium where the balance of the energy being generated exactly balances the gravity and you're in equilibrium and the star will become stable again. So sort of the way it was on the main sequence, we've gotten back there again. It's now stable. It's got some source of energy. It's no longer, core's no longer collapsing and it has a source of energy. It's got helium fusing to carbon in the core and that is balancing the gravity. So the, car, the star becomes stable again. And as we look at that on the HR diagram, here it is. So we had looked last time, we looked at as, it, as the sun right now is going, is here on seven, working its way up towards the subgiant branch. That's going to take it several billion years. It's going to take it, you know, five billion years to get there. Then as it runs out of hydrogen fuel, it shoots up towards the, towards point nine. It shoots up to the red giant branch. The core is contracting, the outer layers are expanding. It's getting much bigger, much cooler. And eventually, at stage nine is where that helium flash occurs, where all of a sudden it starts producing energy again in this core, and then it jumps very quickly down to what we call the horizontal branch into stage 10. So it jumps down very quickly from this red giant <coughs> phase. The star contracts again overall. The core expands. The outer layers contract down. And it becomes a stable star for a relatively short time, as long as it can burn that helium, as long as it has that helium as a source of energy, it can stay here stably on the horizontal branch. That's not a very long time. Certainly not compared to the 10 billion years we spent at stage seven. 
it's a much shorter time. In fact, I think I gave you the numbers last time, but it's you're talking, you know, million, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years instead of billions of years. You're talking about a much shorter time frame. But it will live there. It'll stay there stably for a reasonable amount of time, and we can actually find stars that are located in that part of the HR diagram. But it doesn't last very long. So back to the giant branch. It came down, it so star got big, star gets small. Now the star is going to go back and get big again. We're doing the same thing that we did the last time, except now we're doing it, we're building up carbon ash. So last time we were building up helium ash, now we're fusing helium into carbon and building up carbon ash. So you have carbon, carbon concentrating at the center, and around that you have an area where it's hot enough for helium to burn, and around that you have an area where it's hot enough for hydrogen to burn, most of the surface of the star is still just transporting that energy. It's not creating any other energy. As this happens, as, you as this core, bless you, starts to contract, it becomes hotter and hotter and the reactions go quicker and quicker. So we're going through that helium much faster than we went through the hydrogen. The other thing that happens, I didn't mention on the slide, is that when you get helium and you fuse helium to carbon, there is a mass difference but it's even less. As you go towards heavier and heavier elements, you require more reactions to produce energy. So each, each reaction fusing helium to carbon forms less energy than the ones that fused hydrogen to helium. That's the most efficient process of fusion to give you energy. Helium to carbon is less efficient. Carbon to heavier elements is even less. So you have to go through more and more reactions just to get that energy, and you run out of fuel quicker. So you're going to run out of fuel much quicker. But we're at the same conditions, same place we were when we were leaving the main sequence. We've got a core of ash at the center and we have a shell burning around it. And that hydrogen burning shell is helping you in a way. The hydrogen burning shell is making helium, which then becomes part of the helium shell and then burns to carbon. So you're forming, you have multiple layers there. And eventually when you see even more massive stars, it turns into a little onion. You've got not only you know, got the heaviest elements at the core, and then you may have eight or ten shells around it. Something like the sun will end up about here. This is about as far as the sun will get. Yes, sir? How do they go about estimating the length of these stages and everything whenever, isn't the age of the universe about how long it takes for these, how long were these stages, stage seven? No. No, a lot longer, a lot longer. Is the age of the universe is about, about 13 point some billion years, 13, 14 billion oh, years. It's million. Millions, yes, these are millions. Now some of the other stuff, but a lot of this is done, I mean we can't watch them, we do it through theoretical so models. How they how long they stay in stages? Through, the, through, through a model. You'd model the star, you'd do a theoretical computer model of the star based on what we see, and then you'd fit it to what we see, how do, what do we see, and we'll look at this at the end in terms of what we see in star clusters know, how the stars evolve and how long they take to, to move. But it's, it's, all done, it's all done theoretically. So you make a model of the star, you find out what the temperatures are, what the pressures are throughout the star, and you can figure out, okay, where is it going to be hot enough? Where is that area where it's hot enough to burn hydrogen? Where is it hot enough to burn helium? Where, what areas is it hot enough? And you can do that. And when you solve, there's a set of four equations. I don't remember if I showed them to this class or not. You don't need to see them. They're four yucky partial differential equations. But if you solve all those equations, it tells you what the structure is throughout the star. And depending on the initial conditions, then you can determine 
you know, what's going to be there, where what's going to be in each portion, what's the temperature is going to be at each part, part, how much mass is going to be within that area, what the density is, so you can tell where the reactions would be able to occur. And is all that based off of our sun mainly? Um, not really. They apply to all. It's for all stars. I mean, it's we can look at other stars to do it too. I mean, our, the only thing we can do with our sun is that we get to see it a lot closer. But in terms of measuring the how the stars age and what goes on with them there, it really doesn't. And we can't see our sun move. We actually look more at star clusters and see how the clusters move, how the clusters change, and how stars have evolved in the clusters. Okay. So now we've got two shells. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to go back up, back up the giant branch. So we kind of went up to that helium flash area, ignited helium, jumped down to the horizontal branch, stayed there nice and stable for, I don't remember what it is, 100 million years or so. Have to double check the number. Then it starts to run out. Now it's, running, it's going to start running out of helium. It's going to form carbon in the core. And it's going to do the same thing. It's got carbon in the core. It's got those shells around, as we saw on the last slide. And it continues to move its way up, up the HR diagram, up to that upper right corner, past where it was, you know, more than 100 times the size of the sun. You're actually going to be talking you know, many, several hundred times the size of the sun. And at this point is where the sun will be big enough that it will actually swallow the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, uh, probably out to, about, almost out to close to Mars, will actually end up being within the entirety of the sun. So it's become a giant again. We call that the asymptotic giant branch. It's going back up towards the giant branch again. And you may see that referenced in the, in the textbook. So that's what's happening there. You've got a very dense core. The, the star is getting bigger and bigger and bigger outside. And that core is starting to collapse again as we've run out of energy sources. Now we're building up carbon in the core of the star. So here's a quick graphic just kind of showing what goes on with the entire evolution of a star. Here's those very early stages. Don't take very much time. Settles down to become a main sequence star. Stays there for almost all of its life. Then as it goes through the red giant stages, it goes and becomes a giant in here at some point. I had to figure out where that is. But then it goes again and it becomes a super red, red super giant here at stage 9. And then eventually those outer layers get pushed off into space. And all that's left is the core. So the core gets left exposed to space, extremely hot, and slowly cools off. That's what we call a white dwarf. So that's, this is what the sun, this is what we've talked about so far. This was the formation of the star in a protostar. Most of it, stage 8, stage 9, it's kind of skipping the asymptotic giant branch and the stuff I just went over the next stage of a star like the sun. There'd be two of these red giant phases. And then it goes on to be a white dwarf. And all that white dwarf can do, it has no source of energy. It's a big ball of carbon for something like the sun. Essentially a big, big giant diamond, you know, beyond d denser than a diamond, but you know, all carbon. And that, all that can do is slowly cool off. There's nothing else that can happen with that. Nothing, well, not many things. For the sun, nothing else can happen to it. There's some other interesting things that can happen for other stars. But a star like the sun will not have enough mass. It'll never get a high enough temperature to be able to smash carbon atoms together. Remember, hydrogen was one and one, helium is two and two. We jump to carbon as the next one, that's six and six. So now all of a sudden you're trying to smash six protons against six protons at the same time. That requires an extremely high temperature. The sun will never get that hot. The sun will never reach a temperature where that would be, where they'd be able to smash two carbon atoms together, get them to fuse to create energy. More massive stars will be able to do that. 
So as there's no more pressure, the core is just building up those layers that were fusing hydrogen and helium on the outer layers in, the, in those shells are adding carbon to the core. It continues to contract, gets smaller and smaller. And the outer layers expand. So you've got the central core collapsing, getting smaller and smaller, ending up about something the size of the Earth. Big, yeah, but tiny compared to what it was. And considering the amount of matter that's there, that's still most of the matter of the sun is going to be staying there. And then the outer layers get pushed off into space. Eventually the star gets so big that those outer layers just aren't stable. They're not, there's not enough gravity to hold them. And as the star is inst inst unstable and it may pulse off and it may push off those outer layers. And we'll, see, so we'll probably see the sun will be something like this in about five to six billion years. Looked at from a distance, you'd see you know, a central white dwarf star, which is labeled by the arrows here, and then some sort of nebula, all the gas, all the outer layers of the sun, primarily hydrogen and helium, around it. You can get something very simple, like one of these. Very just looks like, looks like a big giant star, essentially. You can also get, depending on the actual mechanism, and we don't completely understand it, but sometimes you can get things where they're pulsed out in different directions, and it probably has something to do with how unstable the star is. Something that just kind of goes nice and smooth and the layers just go out, gives you a nice pretty, uh, like this, what's called the ring nebula here. You know, looks like a nice little ring. Or if you have something unstable or something else going on, you may be pushing off material in certain directions. But this is eventually what the sun will look like. And then that, that planetary nebula phase does not last very long. It's a very short time that this lasts because this star, this core of the star was incredibly hot. That white dwarf was incredibly hot when it started. So it's hot enough to emit a lot of radiation to excite the atoms, excite those hydrogen atoms and other oxygen atoms and everything else that's there in those outer layers and cause them to glow. Over time, that white dwarf is going to cool off. Once it cools off to the point where it's not emitting enough ultraviolet energy to excite those atoms, turn off the nebula. There's nothing to cause it to glow. You know, it's like turning off the light bulb. It's gone. It's no longer emitting enough energy and the nebula itself will turn off and that material will just slowly expand out into space. So, two parts. So we've got, the star is now split into two. You've got an extremely dense core. And extremely dense, again, it's beyond anything that you can imagine here on Earth. You know, it's not just, you know, Oh, you know, a tablespoon, a tablespoon of material weighs, you know, hundreds or thousands of tons. I mean, that's how much how compacted the material is. You've squished out all the empty space, and pretty much everything we're familiar with is so much empty space. I mean, there's a lot of space between the electrons and the atoms. If you could scrunch out all that space, you can push it down to an extremely small amount, small size. You can take something with the mass of the sun. And you can squeeze all the space out of, those, out of those electrons, put those electrons as close as they can possibly go, and you end up with something the size of the Earth. So you, take this, you could take the sun, if you can squish out all that space, you can end up with something the size of the Earth. That's the extremely dense carbon core. So very small, about the size of the Earth, and extremely dense, and extremely hot. You know, formed hundreds of thousands of degrees. Because this was originally that core that was hundreds of millions of degrees. It'll, once it stops producing energy, it's going to cool off. And it'll cool off very quickly at first and then much slower. And then finally, an envelope. The outer layers of the sun 
not near as much mass, but the whole big outer layers is still a lot of material there, that gets pushed off into the universe. And will be something at this point, the pictures we looked at would be something the size of the solar system. So that material will slowly expand out through the solar system and bigger and eventually just merge into material in interstellar space. It is called a planetary nebula because when you look at it, if you look at it through a small telescope, not when you look at the nice big you know, Hubble pictures or big giant pictures that I show you here, but when you look at it through a small telescope, it looked like either a little disk, so it looked like it might have been a planet, or it looked like it was either a star with a planet with a system of planets around it, with planets around it. So that's sort of how it got its name. It really doesn't have anything to do with a planet. It's not, not related to a planet. It's nothing to do with you know, Mercury or Venus or Mars or Jupiter. It's nothing to do with any of those. It just kind of looked like a planet or a planetary system when you, way you saw those rings. But that again, that's where the sun is going to end up. So at some point, the sun will push out its outer layers, contract to a core, and if you could come back and look at the solar system in six, seven billion years, the planetary nebula phase will be gone. All you'll have left is a white dwarf star, a very hot star, white dwarf star, left around whatever planets managed to survive. Now the outer layers being pushed off probably wouldn't destroy the planets, but the ones that are still here when we're a red giant star would probably be completely destroyed. So things like Mercury, Venus, and Earth will probably be completely wiped out just because they'll be within the sun at some point. Things like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune being further away may be affected by this extra, the I mean, sun's going to be a lot bigger, a lot brighter, emitting a lot more energy, but will still probably be around. Now what happens at the end, we kind of jump over the, we said the tragedy of the planetary nebula phase, but 13 and 14, the last two phases are the white dwarfs and the black dwarfs. And the only difference is they forms as a white dwarf, very hot, so it's going to look bluish white in color, and then over time it's going to slowly cool off. And as it cools off, it moves down the HR diagram, and it will just continue down there. You know, eventually, it will reach temperature very close to the temperature of space, which is about three degrees. That takes an extremely long time. So it's nothing that a black dwarf does not yet exist in the universe. Even the first white dwarfs to form, you know, early on in the history of the universe, have not had enough time to cool off to the very low temperatures that would be a black dwarf. The other thing is that they'd be very hard to detect. They wouldn't, be they wouldn't be bright. They'd be very dark objects, so they'd be very hard to see. But if you look at where the white dwarfs are, they're in this lower, right, left, lower left hand part. So the only reason we actually see them, they're very, very small stars. They're, not, they're only bright because they have such a high temperature. As they cool off, they're going to be hard to see. If they cool off to something, the temperature of the sun, or even cooler as they do that, they're going to be almost impossible to detect. But we can do the cooling calculations. They can calculate how long it will take something this size and this temperature sitting in space to cool off. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It can take you know, 20, 50 billion years, depending on the initial temperatures, for it to cool off to become a black dwarf star. But we only see them right now because, they're because of their extremely high temperatures. So here's an example of one. Uh, bright star Sirius, brightest star in the sky, actually is composed of two stars. So here's Sirius right now. That's the bright star you see. Uh, you still see it right now? Evening? Maybe still? 
you can see Sirius, real bright, real brightest star in the sky. Um, and if you can look at it with a telescope, there's actually, it has a small companion, Sirius B, which is actually a white dwarf star. So very, very small star, but very, very hot star. So at some point in the past, Sirius B was a, would have been a red giant, would have been, would have gone through all those phases that we just talked about, used up all its energy, ended up pushing out outer layers, probably been a planetary nebula, and then now all we have left is the core. And you have the white, the other star that's still around, still around there. So those type of stars can easily survive. You know, a planetary nebula formation is not cause a lot of disruption. Question? They're orbiting each other, yes. So when you talk about stars, really one doesn't orbit the other because their masses are comparable or close enough that they really kind of have a mutual orbit around each other. Technically, everything does. I mean, we say the Earth orbits the Sun because the Sun is so much more massive. But really, the Sun orbits too. The Sun has this little teeny tiny orbit, which is well within the Sun, that it orbits around. So the Earth and the Sun are both orbiting around this central point. But yeah, really, if Sirius B would be less massive now, so it would be orbit around Sirius A, but technically they'd orbit around each other. So B is the, what is the dwarf? A is the bright one, yep. And B is the white dwarf. A would have been the first one that would have been seen, the old bright one that you can see easily. And then as you do components of a binary star, multiple star system, you call them A, B, and C as you go further down, as you discover each one. So Sirius B would be the next one, then Sirius C, if there were a third one, would be that one. And here, looking in globular clusters, this is looking at a very central portion of the globular cluster. Now, if you remember, I think we mentioned, may have mentioned globular clusters. They're these really, really old clusters. These are 10 billion years old. So there aren't any hot main sequence stars left. They're all gone. So all these stars should be very red. Well, when you look at the core of this cluster, there's a heck of a lot of blue stars there. All these stars with a bluish tinge are part of that globular cluster. Those are really all white dwarf stars. So when you look at the central cores of these, you know, these are much too bright. These, if these were main sequence stars, they'd have been much brighter because they're so faint and buried down in the core. You know, if they were regular, main, regular typical stars, they'd glow like crazy. But they don't. They're just actually white dwarf stars. There's a whole bunch of these white dwarfs that have formed in these globular clusters, which are much, much older. So stars like the Sun are leaving the main sequence, and stars that have formed white have started to form white dwarfs. But there's a, there's a lot of them. White dwarfs are a very, very common type of star. As it cools, and I sort of mentioned this already, it doesn't get any smaller. That white dwarf is now compacted. It compacts to the point where essentially the, the electrons are essentially touching each other, as close as you can get to touching each other before the electrons start to repel each other. Electrons are negatively charged, so you put them too close, they push, you, they push apart. This is compacted as tight as you possibly can before those electrons start to fight against each other. And so those electrons sort of provide a force to keep it from collapsing anymore. But its size will not change. So all it's doing is staying the same size, cooling, getting dimmer, getting dimmer, getting dimmer, 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 dimmer. Eventually, over many billions of years, it would cease to glow. You would lose all its energy. It's not producing any kind of energy. It's got what heat it had left and is slowly radiating that out into space. So as that disappears, it'll slowly get cooler and cooler and cooler. Its size isn't going to change. It's going to get fainter and fainter and fainter. Eventually, it would become invisible to us. The only way you'd be able to see it is if you found it orbiting 
around with another star. So when Sirius B becomes a black dwarf, come back in 20 billion years and find out, then you would be able to detect its motion just by its motion on uh, pulling on Sirius the way we detect planets now. Now, another type of star. I said nothing can happen to a white dwarf. Well, it's nothing for a happen for the white dwarf for a star like the sun. But there is a type of star, which you call a nova, that gets extremely bright for a very short period of time and then goes right back pretty much to where it was. So star here at one point, star here a short time later. Big change in brightness, right? It's gotten, gotten quite a bit brighter all of a sudden. In fact, if you count its brightness relative to the sun here as about one, it got 10,000 times brighter, or about 10 magnitudes brighter. So you can take a star that would not even have been visible to the naked eye, you know, a seventh or eighth magnitude star that would be below what you could see, and all of a sudden that could get 10 magnitudes brighter and be the brightest star in the sky. So you'd go from being not visible to being the brightest star in the sky for a very short period of time. Look how short it is. This is time and days. So over the period of, you know, within two months, it's back to where it was. It gets real bright for about a month, fades off very slowly. And this is what we call a nova. And we're going to talk about a supernova later. Supernova is even bigger. This is what we call a nova. This is actually part of what can happen with a white dwarf. So a white dwarf can do this. A white dwarf can suddenly go from brightness, from being incredibly dim, to being very, very bright in a very short period of time. And what happens is that there are cases where you have a white dwarf in a binary system. We talked about Sirius. If you have those two stars close enough together, Sirius would likely, since we can separate the two, would likely not be close enough to be able to do this. But you have this very compact object, very dense, a lot of mass. It may pull some matter as this star becomes big and giant, becomes a red giant. It may pull some of the matter forming a little disk of material and actually gaining a little more material. So it's just collecting some matter from the outer edge of the other star. So as these two stars orbit around each other, some of the mass get, gets transferred from the main sequence star, the red giant star. Red giant stars are even better than main sequence because they're so much bigger, puffier, and they don't hold on to those outer layers as well. So it captures that material and it collects on the white dwarf. And what happens, you collect that what matter in the white dwarf. Now, remember what the material is that this is made up of. The outer layers of the star are, always hi are hydrogen, pretty much hydrogen. So you're building up hydrogen on the surface of this white dwarf. And as you build up more hydrogen and more hydrogen, it gets pushed further and further onto the core, gets denser and denser on the core. It heats it up. This white dwarf can be extremely hot, but you can heat up that material even more. Eventually, what will happen is that hydrogen will ignite. So that hydrogen will start to burn instead of at the core of a star, right on the surface. So you've had essentially a big nuclear explosion on the surface of the star, you know, more massive than anything we can imagine, and it has gotten it is, it'll get incredibly bright. It'll actually push all that material push all that material off into space, actually, but will get extremely bright for a relatively short period of time. Now, this kind of thing, it can actually happen more than once. So a nova is not limited to happening one time. A nova can actually happen more than once because you can have that explosion on the surface and give that little explosion. It's only a minor explosion for a star. I mean, it would wipe out the Earth in, a, in an instant, but it's only a minor explosion for the surface of the star. 
what it can do is occur again. So that white dwarf could, after it's blown off that material, it could over another 50, 60, 70, 100 years collect more material. And we have seen novae that occur on a somewhat regular basis. You know, every 50 or so years. It's not an exact number because it depends on how long it takes to get a critical amount of mass to ignite the explosion. It might take 50 years one time. Maybe if the transfer is a little bit less or a little bit more, it might take five years long, longer or five years less. All about the same to the star, but it seems like a long time to us. Now, I'm going to explain it again. I've given it to you, given it to you once. I'm going to kind of do, go through it again here. But material falls onto the white dwarf. And again, I say main sequence here, but another red, red giant is another good one. When you get enough material on the surface of that star, I'm sorry, question. I'm sorry, I didn't see you back there. Um, you said that like for a nova, it collects the material from like another star. Mm -hmm. Would that change the mass of a bigger star? Slightly, yeah. You're not collecting that much mass. Okay. I mean, it's a you're not collecting you know a tenth of the mass of the star, or you know you're collecting a very small amount, but enough to concentrate on the surface of the white dwarf and ignite. So yes, it would change it, but not significantly. I mean, the sun just blows off like 10 million tons of material every year. But it can do that for 10 billion years and it won't really change its mass significantly. Okay. So what you get is all of a sudden, once you get enough material on that white dwarf, it ignites. So it can ignite, it starts burning, and it becomes the brightest star in the, brightest star in the sky. And you can see some of that here. This is just the material. These pictures are just kind of showing the material that's been pushed out in that explosion. I mean, it's an explosion. It starts burning it. It's not, there's nothing to hold it in because you're burning. You have a nuclear explosion going on in the surface of the star. You know, usually it's down in the core. Now it's happening on the surface, and it just gets, it explodes off into space. The star gets incredibly bright for a short time, for a few weeks, and then starts to fade back down. Question. Yeah? What if there's more than one companion star? So it's like basically stealing energy. Mm -hmm. You could, I mean, I'm not sure how it would work in a triple, so usually if you'd have, you'd have to have three stars that close together. I mean, you have to have the stars close, really close together, not just, you know, in the same system. Like Alpha Centauri has two stars that are relatively close and a third star that's orbiting way around them. Well, it's never going to do anything with those two. It's just essentially like a big planet, only it's bigger, bigger than a planet. So you could have, I mean, if you had a, a, a rare system like that, you probably could have some kind of transfer between three stars, but I think it, I think it would be unstable. My, my thought, first thought is gravitationally you'd have too many stars and I think something would eventually go unstable in the orbits and one of them would get kicked out. If you had that many that close together, but I can't tell you, for, couldn't tell you that for sure. But I think it would, not that, I, not that I'm aware of. Questions? Okay. Now. More massive stars. So we looked at a star like the Sun. Now we're going to look at more massive stars. What happens with more massive stars is things are quite a bit different. When we looked at the formation of stars, they were all pretty much the same. I mean, they followed the same path. Some ended up, if they were small, low mass, they ended up way down here on the main sequence. Middle mass here, higher mass, they ended up at different places. But the pattern that they followed was the same. At the end of their lives, it's completely different. There is a vast difference between the masses of the stars. A star like the Sun goes through the subgiant and up to the giant branch. Other stars that are more massive kind of wiggle back and forth as they go from left to right. They still all go over towards that red giant phase, but they kind of wiggle back and forth. They don't follow exactly the same pattern. 
So the patterns are quite different because there are more sources of energy. A star like the Sun can burn hydrogen while it's on the main sequence. That applies to all of them. It can burn helium. It can burn helium. Applies to most stars, you know, all of the more massive stars. Some of these little ones down here can never even burn helium. They just end up as a white dwarf made up of helium. They don't get hot enough to actually burn the helium. These more massive stars can burn things like carbon and oxygen and what do we get up to? Neon and silicon and you know all the way up to iron. They can form things all the way up to iron in their core. So they have multiple energy sources. But again, as I told you, each energy source lasts a less, less time. You get less energy out of fusing carbon together than you got out of hydrogen or helium. You get less hydrogen energy when you try to fuse silicon or neon. You get less and less energy. You see the elements get heavier and heavier. You get less and less energy out of each, out of each reaction. So you need more reactions to balance it so that everything goes faster and you use up all that fuel much quicker. But what we're going to see as we look at this is that the paths that they're going to take, and as I tell you about this, it's going to be quite different. They're all going to go towards the same area, but how they get there is a little bit different. And actually where they end up in the, in the red giant area is going to be different. The more massive stars end up, tend to be brighter and up towards the top. This is the biggest, most giant red giant stars. Now, like the others, like all of the stars, when you leave the main sequence, they stay on the main sequence as long as they can burn hydrogen. So as long as they've got the hydrogen in their core, they can continue to fuse hydrogen to helium and they're nice and stable there. They all leave the main sequence when we've used up that hydrogen. So as the hydrogen is used up in the core, it's done. It's got no more source of energy. You start to form helium in the core. And I'm not going to go through these in detail because they're all the same to what we just did for the Sun. First few events are exactly the same. So you've got this core of helium around it. You're going to have a shell of hydrogen. And that's going to go take you towards the red giant phase. The star is going to get cooler and cooler, bigger and bigger and cooler and cooler. So it's going to move towards the red giant phase. That's exactly the same as what happened in the Sun. Then you're going to burn helium to carbon. Just like we talked about with the sun, you're going to be able, the core of helium will get hot enough, it will ignite, and it will start fusing to carbon with shells of helium and hydrogen burning. Again, you're building up this shell structure. But what we'll find out is that stars bigger than the sun can actually build up more layers. Instead of just having you know, hydrogen and helium and carbon layers, they can add in oxygen, neon, what do we go up, silicon, and I don't remember the others, but it goes right, it'll go right up to it'll go right up to iron. And you can actually have all these different shells of material that are giving it all these different shells, all these little bits are giving it energy, and eventually you're building up iron in the core. Iron in the core is the big problem, which we'll look at in a couple of slides. Iron, you can't get energy out of fusing iron together. So you're 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 out of you're out of gas. There's no way to get energy anymore. But that's what's going to happen. But the first few stages are identical. There's really no change between what happened here and what happened with the sun. It's going to be exactly the same events. So I'm not going through these again in more detail. I want to look at the, what's, what the differences are going to be. Now a couple of the differences would be, and I talked about the helium flash, how it kind of had that jump up the HR diagram. Right? The star went up to the red giant and went faster and faster and faster. All of a sudden the helium ignited. And for a star like the sun, we called it the helium flash. All of a sudden the whole core starts igniting helium at once. And 
burns a lot of that helium off in a very short amount of time. The more massive stars don't do that. They don't experience what they call a helium flash. Things start more gradually. And that's because the core never got quite as dense. It had more mass, pushed everything together at a faster rate, but it didn't have to condense. It didn't have to condense so tiny to get the high temperatures, to get those high temperatures to ignite the helium. So it could ignite helium and create those temperatures even at a bigger size, and it doesn't undergo the flash of helium. So slightly different, that's why you don't see when we saw it in the, we saw the suns, we saw how it went up the red giant phase, it kind of jumped up to the helium flash and then jumped back down. And if you notice on those other charts I showed you for the more massive stars, you didn't see that. It kind of just smoothly moves back and forth. And as you get up to a star that's four times the mass of the sun, it really just, you know, it was just kind of weaving. It went this way a little bit and then it would get hotter again and then it would get cooler and then it would get a little hotter again. And as each of those stages ignite, it would go back and forth across the HR diagram. But it doesn't make any of those sharp changes as again, like the sun did. It went straight up to the helium flash and then jumped back down very quickly. We don't see that in the more massive stars. It takes a lot of time to do that. Okay. So here's some pictures, just looking at some of the stars. There's a couple different stars here shown. There's one star down here, which is an extremely unstable star. It's one they've been watching for years, expecting it to go supernova. But again, the time frame for stars and the time frame for us are different. It might, we've got another thousand years to go, might go tomorrow. There's no way we could specifically tell. But it's an extremely, extremely large, extremely unstable star. These are big blobs of material. It's gotten so much it's starting to push material off. This would be a much more massive star than the, than the sun. But it's one that they think will eventually explode as a supernova if our understanding is correct. You know, if our models are correct of the types of stars that will go. But again, we're talking about stellar time scales, which at this stage can be talking hundreds of thousands to millions of years still. So, you know, it's ready. We're ready waiting for it, but is it ready yet? Or is it going to be ready, you know, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years from now? There's no way to tell. We don't have any exact, we can't get exact measurements of what's going on deep inside the core of that star. We can't tell for sure. Once it gets to that stage, it occurs very, very quickly. So that's a massive star. Another one is closer to maybe a little bit bigger than the sun, but you can actually see some of those areas. You can sort of see almost a planetary nebula in formation, it looks like. It's in pushing out these outer layers. So you have outer layers that have been expanded out into space, which could be material around the star left over from its formation. Some of these don't last very long. Could also be materials from the outer layers of that star. So again, another unstable red giant star that is pushing material off into <coughs> space. And again, either of these could be, depending on the mass of that one, and I'm not sure, that could either be turning into a planetary nebula, could be pushing off its outer layers. If it's more massive, it could be, you know, still the outer layers could be pushed off, but it could eventually become a supernova. It just depends exactly on what the mass, what the mass of the object is. Now, when we get to the most massive stars, about eight times the mass of the sun, they can go well beyond carbon. So we're getting up there to this burning silicon and burning up to getting, getting iron in the core. That is quite a different, that, that's when things start to get quite a bit different. Even those other stars, the two and a half and the four solar mass star, they would have become white dwarfs eventually. They would still become white dwarfs. If you get more than eight solar masses, essentially it moves, it starts way up in the upper corner of the HR diagram, way up to the upper 
left-hand side, and it pretty much just moves straight across, which means it's cooling off. It was a big blue star. It's going to go towards that side, go towards the right side, meaning it's going to get bigger. It's still going to be getting bigger as it moves to the right, and it's going to get cooler. But it's going to stay just about the same brightness. These are the types of stars, these most massive ones, are what die in what we call a supernova explosion. Supernova is, well there's two types of them, we'll look at those in a minute here, but a supernova explosion is essentially the star tearing itself apart. So the star will tear itself apart at the end of its life. It becomes completely unstable, not just the outer layers like the sun, but even deep down inside it becomes unstable. And that's when it forms that core of iron. When it forms that core of iron, it has no more energy source. When you smash two iron atoms together, if it gets hot enough, you can smash two, two iron atoms together. 26 electrons, 26 electrons. You can imagine how hot it's got to get to smash 26 and 26 against each other. But you can do that. But that doesn't release any energy. It takes energy. It actually absorbs energy in order to do that reaction. As you get to the elements above iron, you get there, they are less, you get less energy out of making them, out of fusing them together. So you fuse iron, iron together, you take energy. You cool, off that, you cool off the star, right? You fuse energy, you're taking energy out, you're taking temperature out. It's going to get a little bit cooler. So it's going to compact and get hotter and the reactions are going to go faster. But as those reactions go faster and faster, you're taking more and more energy out of it. Each of those reactions is taking a little bit and cooling it off, trying to cool it off, and the star is trying to generate energy to be stable. It becomes, you can think of it, it becomes a runaway. Eventually it keeps collapsing so fast and the iron keeps fusing and that takes more energy, making it cooler so it keeps doing the same thing over and over again. That's when it will eventually become completely unstable and just collapse. And as it collapses and it will rebound and explode back off, violently expelling the outer layers out into space. So here's what you can end up with. If you have a mass, this is again table 12.3 from your textbook, less than about 0.08 solar masses, you didn't even make a star. Okay, That did not get hot enough to fuse hydrogen to helium. All you got is a big ball of hydrogen and that's what we classified as a brown dwarf. Things that are about 0 .8, 0.08 to 0.25 solar masses, so the very tiniest stars, but remember that was a lot of them, that becomes a helium white dwarf. So it fused hydrogen to helium, but it never got hot enough to actually fuse that, he fuse that helium into carbon. So it's just a big ball of helium essentially. Something like the sun is in the big range. Well, that's mo there's most of the stars right there, between 0.28 and 0.25 and 8 solar masses. That's a big chunk of the stars in the universe. That becomes what we call a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. So you formed carbon primarily, maybe some oxygen, maybe you fused a little bit into the carbon with another helium to make oxygen. But that's most of the stars in the universe. Most of the white dwarfs that we'll see, in fact, probably all the white dwarfs we see right now would be this type because these haven't had time to form yet. They, these, are the one, these are those stars that take so long to go through their lives, they, might, they haven't gone through their life yet in the history of the universe. So you'd need a much older universe in order to have these stars have gone through their lives. When you get to a bigger range, everything starts to get uncertain. You see a little asterisk here. You know, 8 to 12 solar masses. It starts to get up to neon and oxygen. We've gotten a couple more steps up the chain. And instead of, so all the carbon is gone, the carbon has been fused into oxygen and neon. 
But it's approximate. It depends on how much mass, like some of those stars we looked at. Look at how much material they were shedding out into space. For the most part, it's not very much. But if you're really becoming unstable, they can start losing, and a 12 solar mass star can start losing you know, solar mass worth of material from the outer layers. So it can lose a significant amount. And greater than about 12, it goes completely unstable. It gets beyond, it gets up to that iron in the core, and that will go completely unstable, and that will tear itself, that star will tear itself apart. Supernova is, again, remember this, the nova got like 100,000 times brighter than the sun? Well, this one, we start out here at a million times brighter than the sun. So 100,000 is you know, way down here someplace. And these things will actually get a billion, almost 10 billion times brighter than the sun. Or a million times brighter, as bright as a nova. So supernova. No, not, not just a nova, it's a supernova. It's a real big explosion. These, these curves just show the brightness over time and you can see, look how, bright, how quickly it gets bright. So it started off with nothing here, you know, very faint, you couldn't see the star. All of a sudden, if one of these happened in our galaxy, it would be the brightest star, in this, brightest star we could see. Brightest star in the sky would be brighter, you know, brighter, than the, brighter than Venus, brighter than the moon. Unless it was close enough, it could be almost as bright as the sun. I mean, it would be that bright if one of these were to happen close enough to us. Then over time, they slowly fade off. And there's two different types. I'll mention these in a little bit. But there's type 1 and type 2, very creatively named. But easy to remember, at least then. So type 1 and type 2. Type 2 is what we've been talking about, actually. Type 2 supernovae are, is the explosion of a massive star. But they'll still stay, and they'll stay real bright for a short period of time, a couple weeks. And then they'll slowly fade off over several months and eventually go back down to where they, where they were. So let's see, absolutely 20. Yeah, to be brighter than the sun, it would have to occur. It would have to be like one of the nearest stars, which there's nothing nearby that close to us that would ever go supernova. So you're never going to get anything brighter than the sun. But you could easily get stars that would be brighter than Venus if they were to explode. So looking at the absolute magnitudes there. But again, incredibly bright. A supernova, contrast to a nova, is a one-time thing. You get, you get one chance to go supernova. You know, nova can occur again and again and hundreds and thousands of times. Once a supernova occurs, it has torn that star apart and there may be nothing left or there may be just a tiny remnant left. But there are two types. And again, I mentioned them before in the last one. Type, one, type 2, do type 2 first. That's the death of a high-mass star. So that's when you have a star that's built up the iron in its core gone completely unstable and just collapsed and exploded. So it collapses down, explodes back out, and forms a supernova. The other one we classify as type 1 is what we call a carbon detonation supernova. That has nothing to do with a high mass star. That can actually be a lower mass star. This is actually the explosion of a white dwarf star. And we mentioned how a nova worked, how you gathered material on a white dwarf, and that started ignition started ignited nuclear reactions on it well there's a case where that star can complete can go unstable as well so there's a case where that that white dwarf can gather too much mass and depending on how much mass is in the star to begin with there's a limit to how big a white dwarf can be remember i told you those electrons are kind of pushing apart holding it steady if you get enough mass together you crush those electrons together all of a sudden you get enough mass, you overwhelm the pressure of the electrons holding it up, and it, and it will collapse and explode. So this can actually be a white dwarf that can explode if it gains enough mass. 
Not something the sun will ever do. You'd have to have the remnant that was left would have to be about 1.4 times the mass of the sun is now. So the sun's not going to ever become one of those. Plus, it would have no way to gather that extra mass that it needs. It would have to gather, you know, almost half a solar mass just to get that big. Question? It's not mass related as in a massive star. It's not like a 12 solar mass star or 20 solar mass star. It's related only to the mass of the white dwarf, which is about one and a half, 1.4. The maximum a white dwarf can be is 1.4 times the mass of the sun. If you collect it, if you're at 1.39 and you collect enough material from what transfer from a companion, you can push it over that limit. All of a sudden, that white dwarf goes unstable. If it was by itself at 1.39, it'll sit there forever. But if it's got a companion and it's gathering a lot of mass, then it can go unstable, then it can tear itself apart. Now let me see what I've got here. So here's the carbon detonation. So let's go over that again. White dwarf has, computed, has accumulated too much mass. So you need a binary system. You're not going to have a carbon detonation supernova occur unless you are in a binary system. But if you have a binary system and one star became a white dwarf, and say it was close to that 1.4. Again, the sun will end up with you know, something less than a solar mass. It's got one solar mass right now, so it's going to end up with, it's going to lose some of that mass, so it'll be something less than that when it becomes a, a white dwarf. But a more massive star would be, could, could you know, have a white dwarf that was 1.3, 1.35, 1.37, you know, real close to that limit. If you collect enough mass that you push it over that limit, you know, you go from 1.39 to 1.41, that's, that's a lot of mass. You know, 0.02 solar mass is a lot of mass, but if you're transferring mass from another star, it's certainly something that can happen. And that means that electron pressure, which is this electron degeneracy here, which is the electrons pushing against each other and keeping the, car, the core from collapsing, they can't work. They're not strong enough. You know, if you push on anything hard enough, it's eventually going to break, right? If I push on the wall, I'm not going to be able to move it. But if you push on it harder and harder and harder, you know, eventually get a big bulldozer out there, it'll, it'll collapse. Well, you're putting enough mass on top of this star, eventually you're going to crush it. You're going to crush those electrons, and all of a sudden it starts to collapse, heats up, and carbon fusion begins throughout the entire star at one time. So it fuses carbon to the heavier elements all at once and with nothing outside to sort of hold it in. So it just tears itself apart. Essentially, it's a gigantic carbon explosion. So explode, all that carbon pushes down, collapses the star, the carbon begins burning throughout that entire star very rapidly, all at once. Sort of, it's sort of like the uh, helium flash we talked about when helium started burning. The same thing here, except we're doing it with carbon and we're doing it all at once throughout the entire star. All that's left of that star, it all begins, becomes a gigantic nuclear explosion. All at once, that entire star explode, starts burning carbon, and that's so much energy that it just tears the rest of the star apart. And that's one version of a supernova, one type of supernova, and that's what we call the type 1. Yeah? When a supernova happens mm -hmm. and it you know, pushes everything out, yeah. is it enough force to you know, alter the, the, um, like just the position of the stars around it? The star, not unless, there would have to be something very close to it. I mean, it would have to be like in a, in a binary system would be the only way it would affect it. Even a star that is, you know, a light, couple light years away, it's not going to be enough. It would be an incredibly bright star in the sky. Yeah. 
but it's not going to actually, you know, it's not going to damage any of the other stars around it. You know, one star. Or push it, like push it into the orbit of another star and then it could... No. No? No. Not going to, not going to be enough energy there. Maybe there could be some effects if there was a binary system and you're throwing but you're going to change some of the mechanics there. If you have two or three stars together, that force that close together, that might. But in terms of other stars, you know, that's not going to do anything else. If the Alpha Centauri, which could never go supernova, went supernova, it's going to be incredibly bright in the sky, but it's not going to affect the sun. It's not going to change the orbit of the sun. So here's sort of just graphically looking at them. And again, this is a picture from your textbook here. But essentially what happens is you had a binary star system with a big star and a little star. So this is type 1 supernova. You form a white dwarf in a planetary nebula with that big star and leaves again about a solar mass, 1.4 solar masses in that white dwarf. And here this one all of a sudden as it goes through its life, you know, first of all it's not really a big deal because it's far enough away. But as it gets bigger, as it grows, then that material actually will start getting collected. So that mysterious red giant gets bigger, it gets closer, it's going to be closer to that star, and it's going to start collecting material. If it pushes it over that limit, 1.4 times the mass of the sun, boom, it's gone. It te- that star tears itself apart, and this star probably isn't going to be too happy. <laughs> you know, if you have that big of an explosion occurring that close to you, that's going to be a major problem. That'll probably tear part of that, part of that apart. Might not completely destroy it. Which is interesting because there are, there are remnants of supernovae explosions that you know, are in binary systems. So you can have you know, binary systems, so it can't necessarily destroy the star, but it will certainly not make it, it will certainly cause some damage. It could adjust orbits, it could change things like that because you're changing the mass. And especially you know, if this star is completely tearing itself apart, because in this case, there's pretty much nothing left. That star tore itself completely apart and it's gone. So now you had a star that was orbiting something that's got nothing to orbit, so it's going to definitely affect its orbit. So as you asked about that, it's going to affect the orbit in that case. The other one, again, just build up the shells, went up to an iron core. Again, you can't get any, iron, any energy from fusing iron together. So the iron core collapses. Well, it collapses down, it's going to rebound back out. And then that eventually will tear the rest of that. That explosion has came back, will come back out, and will tear their entire star apart. That will leave a remnant. This one actually leaves what we call a neutron star, subject to the next chapter. But this type of supernova will leave a remnant. Very, very tiny remnant, about 10 kilometers across. Might still be as massive as the sun, or more, but about 10 kilometers across. And we'll come back to that. That's, again, that's one of the subjects of the next chapter. But this one will actually leave a remnant. Type 1s are not believed to leave any kind of remnant. It would just tear the entire star apart. So here's an example of what you do see. And I mean, I mean remnant. Now I'm showing you supernova remnants. When I say remnant, I meant anything of that core left. It is going to, the material is going to fly out into space. And you see a couple here. This is the Crab Nebula uh, in the constellation of Taurus which is a remnant of a supernova explosion that occurred about a thousand years ago now. Not quite a thousand years ago. So that was visible in the year 1054. And since that time it's been expanding outward. We could actually measure, you know, measure the explosion. Of the, you can measure the explosion, trace it backwards by looking at pictures of this taken you know, now, taken 50 years ago. And you can look at how the little bits, how the little knots of material are slowly moving outward over time. And you can actually then trace it back and figure out when it occurred. We also have records of this supernova having occurred. It was, it was visible. It was very visible in the constellation of Taurus. And this is another supernova, just another supernova remnant, just to give you an idea. 
But you see the difference between those, if you remember those planetary nebula ones I showed? They were nice, smooth rings. It looked nice and calm. These don't look like anything nice and calm happened. These look like these stars tore themselves apart. So these stars have, you know, destroyed themselves. Okay, I'm gonna see what get through a few minutes worth of this at least. This is the last, this is the last unit that comes up for the for the exam. So star clusters, how do we how do we figure out that our models are correct? So how do we know that our models are correct? We need some ways to be able to study them. So we can study a group of stars of different mass forming. And this is exactly what would happen in a star cluster. So what we're going to look at over the coming slides is look at this in age from time zero when this cluster formed up till about 10 billion years. And we can use that, we can use our models of how stars evolve of different masses and test them with these types of observations of star clusters. So what you might predict for time zero is that a lot of your stars, all the stars up here are on the main sequence, nothing's left the main sequence yet. But you'll notice these stars haven't even gotten there. So these stars are still forming the main sequence, still forming the main sequence, they're still forming. Those low mass stars take a longer time to form. So they haven't even reached the main sequence yet, whereas these other ones have. And if you look after 10 million years, 10 million years, those most massive stars are gone. They're already leaving. Here they are, zoom over to the red giant phase. They're done. They've used up all their fuel already. These poor little guys haven't even finished forming yet. So if you had a cluster, you can actually see some clusters, very young clusters, where you could find stars that have already left the main sequence, stars that haven't even reached the main sequence. So those are again way down there. Those are below. You know, sun would be in here someplace. But these stars are still working their way. Those low mass stars will take much longer to reach the main sequence than the more massive stars will have to have gotten to the main sequence, burned up all their fuel, and left the main sequence. So those smaller ones have not even reached there yet. As we go a little further along, now we've got almost all those stars reaching the main sequence. We're getting real close there. Just the few lowest ones are still getting there. And after 100 million years, you see that there's nothing. You can see the real light blue ones here, but there's nothing up above that in that very top portion. But you have a few that are starting to go over to the red giant range. And as you go through, again, that's 100 million years. And after a billion years, even more. So you see, all these stars here are nicely on the main sequence. You know, they've been staying there. Some of them have just gotten there. Some have been staying for a while. But you have more and more. And you start to see the turnoff. As you get further and further down the main sequence, there's more and more stars. I showed you a graph a while ago, I think, that looked at how many stars you formed of each different mass. And you formed lots and lots of these stars, and you didn't form too many of these. So as you get further and further down, you start to see what we call a turnoff point, where the stars are just leaving the main sequence. And that starts with our models. That helps us to teach us what the age of the cluster is. We know how long each of these stars should live. So the ones that are just leaving the main sequence, wherever that turnoff point is, tells you how old that cluster is. So in this case, the cluster would be about a billion years old. Stars like the Sun are still nicely on the main sequence. Stars much more massive that would only live 10 million years or 100 million years are long gone. And then after 10 billion years, now you start to see what we looked at. Now you start to see 10 billion years, that's the lifespan of the Sun. So essentially you're seeing the evolution of the Sun here all at once. You see that what we just looked at when we looked at the Sun on the HR diagram, there's the turnoff point into the subgiants going up to the giants, going to the horizontal branch up here, the asymptotic giant branch going back up again. 
it looks a lot like, I mean, this would be the observation of a star cluster, but this would look a lot like what we see in terms of the sun. So you see all those different branches that we did. And of course, there's a lot more stars there that are starting to form. So you're starting to see things traced out a lot better. And you're starting to see the white dwarfs now. So you're actually starting to see the white dwarf, white dwarf stars and all the different branches. You don't see as much of it earlier on just because there weren't as many stars and the time frames are so much shorter. The sun will spend more time as a red giant star than a much more massive star will. They go through their lives a lot quicker. Let's see what's there. Okay, then these last two I think are just looking at the star clusters and I'll go ahead and stop with those. There's a double cluster here. This is actually two star clusters right here and here. Extremely young stars. All stars here on the main sequence. They turn off. Can you even tell it real easily? Can you tell for sure where that's turning off? I can't. I mean, you can get an idea, but it's about here. But to get a real good number is hard. But it's a very, we can still tell it's a very young cluster because you have all of these stars on the main sequence. You would not see those otherwise. In an older cluster, those stars would be gone. And yes, you have a few that made it over to the red giant range. So you not only have the giant blue stars, but you've got giant red stars as well. If you look at an older cluster, is that what I am? Oh, that's the I got two of them. Okay. Hyades cluster, another young one, about 600 million years, but you see how that upper part of the main sequence is all gone. Nothing left there, all gone. So here's about where they're turning off. There's some red giants, but you're actually starting to form some white dwarfs now. You've gotten rid of all the real big massive stars that would have, would have gone supernova are gone. And then finally, if you go to the last and you go to about 10 billion years, 10 to 12 billion years old, you end up with something like this. Uh, much older than the previous ones. It's a globular cluster, and that looks a lot like the evolution of the sun that I just showed you. Red dwarfs. Main sequence, subgiants, red giants, horizontal, asymptotic giant branch, white dwarfs. Essentially, everything the sun is going to do is set there. So, and that's about as far as I went on the exam, so I'm not going to try to get through the last slide. I'll come up and review that again. I'll review the, la the last couple slides on it or just a review in that. So, are there, are there questions before I go ahead and hand this out? We've got about two minutes left. No? Okay. I'm going to give you the exam then. You've got, bring, bring it back Tuesday. If you lose it, there is a PDF copy up on D2L, so you can get another copy of it if you lose it to some place. You, know, you don't have to email frantically on Tuesday night or any, uh, Monday night or anything to do it. Um, on the essays, the essays are the same as the others. I do ask you to be careful on the essays. Make sure you read them. Make sure, please make sure you're not, and I don't think, I hope I've written them so you can't just easily go, but please don't just copy sections out of the book. That's, that is plagiarism. That won't get you full credit. If you're copying just from the book or from a website, that won't get you credit on those. So, you know, read your book, read your website, read your notes, but don't, don't just copy things word for word or change one or two words that doesn't make it make it your own and that won't get you credit on it. If there are questions on it, I mean I won't see you again until it's due, you're welcome to email me email me questions if there's a question or concern concern on it. Otherwise have a good weekend and I will see you on Tuesday. <laughs>